Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Jackie here, your host of the TV Foundation's brand new podcast, Say It Loud. We have a wicked guest on today's episode. So make sure you get your notepad and your biro because it's going to be a good one. I have never heard anybody depict the TV industry in the way that this person has. Honestly, it's so good. You'll regret it if you don't get your notepad. So go on, you've got time. Go off, off you go. This is outrageous, Jackie. Hello and welcome to Edinburgh TV Festival's brand new podcast, Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud. And I am buzzed for today's guest. In 2014, he made history. He was the first black British solo comic to be nominated for the Edinburgh Comedy Award for Best Newcomer for his set, Citizen Zane. He's going on to his fourth stand-up tour this month, virtually, of course, called Chocolate Chip. He's a regular on the TV circuit, featuring on Mock the Week. He's also known for creating and starring in his BBC Three sitcom, Sunny D, and now his new BBC Three pilot, Bamus, which is everything unapologetically Black and British, which also aired on BBC One. He's not famous. He's famous. He always wants to give the UK talent their flowers. It's our florist. It's Dane Baptiste. Hello. Hi. Hello, Dane. Hello, hi. How are you doing, Jackie? What's happening, mate? I'm good, Dane. How are you? Thank you very. I'm thank. I'm good, thank you. I'm grateful. Uh, I'm blessed to be alive. Taking it a day at a time. And uh, thank you. And I'm, I'm very grateful for the intro as well. Um, actually, don't let them tell you any otherwise. First Black British nominee ever. Du- duo, trio, sketch troupe. Otherwise, no other Black Britain had been nominated. They have been since though. We have made progress, but that was the first time. That's amazing. Uh, in the largest, it's amazing. I mean, it's, I mean, I'm very, very grateful, but also amazing to think that in the world's largest arts festival that uh, Black Britons hadn't previously had. Sure. So, um, yeah, it was very, uh, very, very humbling and uh, flattering to be the first. But, um, yeah, fortunately, it, it was really the first of many and long may it continue. So, yeah, Amen to that. How are um, you? How are you doing? What's happening? Dane, I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm so happy to have you on. It's like, oh my God, we've got Dane Baptiste on. Dane, we're going to have so much fun. Seriously. Don't doubt it. Don't doubt it. And just you. know, on this podcast, we're not going to confuse you for Richard Blackwood or Darren Harris. <laughs> 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 it ain't that kind of podcast. <laughs> Fair enough. 
Fair enough. In this in this crazy world, yeah, it, it's it's nice. I mean, you know, not taking anything away from those guys, but you know, I have my own life that I want as well, and so right. I, yeah, I, and you're and you're a whole other person. So completely, um, completely. Which we will talk a lot about on today's episode. Um, obviously, I called you a florist because it's clear um, in your comedy that you're always wanting to give people their flowers, which I think is really important. Um, and um, I will also discuss about Bamus and why Bamus is just so, it's so, so important to our culture. Um, so let's get into it. I mean, I didn't want to mention the C word, but I feel like these days we can't have a conversation without talking about COVID. How are you doing in the um, midst of this Panacana pandemic, pandemonium? It's, uh, I, I mean, personally, I'd say I'm doing okay. I've been uh, very fortunate to be able to still work throughout uh, 2020. Uh, during and post initial COVID lockdowns and the like. Mm -hmm. So I guess, yeah, professionally, I haven't been too bad. Um, I would guess, uh, I suppose socially, I've been okay. I've, uh, again, grateful that I've, I mean, there have been some losses to my family uh, due to COVID and family friends. Um, but uh, in immediate family, uh, you know, everyone's still here. So I'm real grateful for that. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, on the whole, man, I just feel like, it's I've been okay man I think if I really sit back and think about what a lot of people are dealing with some people have had massive damage to their livelihood or their ability to earn during this time mm -hmm. especially large members of the uh, creative community mm -hmm. uh, so yeah for a lot of people my heart goes out to them a lot of people have uh, you know a large part of their income the large part of the way they support themselves and their family comes from being able to be live performers and uh, seeing that taken away from them has been tough so it's just been tough to watch but it's allowed me to have perspective in terms of the small freedoms of movement or opportunity that I may have lost compared to other people hasn't been that bad man but for the main part obviously COVID is always going to bother me obviously due to the fact that we come from a community that is uh, disproportionately affected by COVID right. um, due to pre-existing health conditions so that concerns me mm. um, so the more information and awareness that is spread and shared uh, the better really but um, that's it as an artist you know my, my heart bleeds for the world uh, but you know myself personally I'm okay so I guess I don't have the vaccine, but more I can do in terms of giving people the best medicine as a comic, then the better. Right. Laughter is the best medicine, huh? Yes, right. Not, not, it's not a vaccination. I can't stress that enough. <laughs> it's not as good as the Oxford or Pfizer vaccine. But, you know, if I can soothe the other pain of uh, loneliness or marginalization or anxiety or worry at these times, then, yeah, I'm definitely Dr. Dane in that respect. Yes. No, I love it. And your comedy, Bamus, has just been just so refreshing, um, especially during this time. Like... And also because of Black Lives Matter last year as well. Well, obviously we're not black, you know, for the month of June, we're black 365 every mm -hmm. single day. So um, it just felt so current and just, we need to laugh. Black joy is, um, you know, it's it's a tool of resistance. So yeah, Bamus was just perfect for that. Absolutely. That I mean, that's one of the, that's one of the reasons it exists. Uh, Bamus uh, is the precipitation of a couple of years of work and ideas and me trying to devise a new format which would a, allow a, uh, I suppose, an expansive as well as positive look at the diaspora's um, contributions towards arts and culture and British society as a whole. Um, it's also, I guess, the subtext of it is, is quite satirical when people say all lives matter. So I'm like, cool, well, these are the lives that I that uh, shaped and molded my mind. So let me share them with the world. Right. Um, but by the same token, you know, people, it's funny, people only tend to assert that all lives matter as a rebuttal to the statement of Black Lives Matter, which in <laughs> itself led to the largest humanitarian movement that the world has ever seen. Right. Um, 
And so, yeah, really the subtext of it is being that, well, okay, cool. Um, all lives matter. Well, we'll see. I know you aren't feeding your children. But, you know, black children and black lives matter to me. And so I'll demonstrate that. Rather than me having the, uh, the discourse back and forth about the semantics of lives mattering, mm-hmm. I would much rather show and prove. And therefore, I wanted to create a format that showed that there are a number of lives that do matter to me. And I feel like, you know, it's, it's 2020, as well as uh, having, obviously, issues of biological nature with COVID, They've had, it's been, it was a very charged year, both racially and socially, mm-hmm. where I feel if nothing else, we are right at the door banging on it and forcing uh, either our oppressors or those who've had the privilege of oblivion mm-hmm. to really have this conversation regarding institutional and structural racism as well right. as racial rhetoric. Um, and so again, famous is really again, attesting the idea that uh, people who assert that Britain is not racist and that, we don't have the same issues in our social fabric as America does. Well, Bamus seeks to kind of, yeah, really uh, hold that to task. If we are comfortable and we are asserting that we are fully integrated, then a show like this really shouldn't be a problem because it's not particularly distinct from British culture because right. black are British people as well. In the same way that if you show, if we can have a TV show which we focus on the Spanish Football League in this country, you can have a TV mm-hmm. show where we focus on, you know, uh, particular regions of the UK, like, you know, Mrs. Brown's Boys focuses on the Republic of Ireland, whereas, mm-hmm. you know, Gavin and Stacey took place in Wales, where we are looking at uh, Welsh, uh, the, the subculture of Wales and Ireland, right. respectively, as subculture yeah. of the British Isles. Well, we've been here, you know, as far back as Cheddar Man. And so having a show which looks at ourselves and our contributions based on our aesthetic and a few of our culture, there shouldn't be a problem with that because Black yeah. British culture is, by definition, British culture. I think that's such a good point because we only need to look at the outrage over Sainsbury's adverts. You know, um, I think it was uh, th- there was a few adverts that were done where there were black families and there was outrage. I'm never shopping at you know Sainsbury's again or whatever. And it's like, okay, but we said the UK is not racist, but why does a black family offend you on you know on an advert? We are British people as well, and I think that. Well, yeah, exactly. It's even weirder that people are affected by it, despite the fact that Argos had the same similar campaign with aliens. They had aliens, and Audi had carrots. And Audi had carrots. And so it really speaks to the, uh, I guess, the collective consciousness of your quintessential racist or, I suppose, um, alt-right ideologue who believes that, you know, Mm -hmm. that these issues are more about ourselves and seeking victimhood and the like. It's like, well, you seem to be fine with aliens, and even though it's not true, existence of extraterrestrials, no one has a problem with them being here. And I always find it quite ironic that, you know, you hear Americans, you know, even with their xenophobic rhetoric, refer to, uh, you know, members of the Latinx community as illegal aliens. So I'm just like, so you're fine with actual aliens who don't pay a cent, not even from this planet, but people from the other side of the border is what you have a problem with. So if Ameri- if Mexicans kidnap you in a flying ship and put right. them in your butt and kidnap you with cows, would you find them more respectable then? Because mm. you have a whole area called 51 in Roswell, New Mexico. It's funny that they're fine with aliens in New Mexico, but old Mexico, they got a problem with them aliens. Right. So, yeah, again, it's kind of like really focused on this rhetoric because I feel like one of the issues we're dealing with now is this attempt to try and give legitimacy to alt-right rhetoric where, you know, people are like, we need to give people a platform. I'm like, if somebody is trying to explain with no factual or scientific basis while one group of people is superior to the other, they don't need a platform. If you're in a maths class and they say one and one is two and someone goes, well, I think it's three. We don't go, well, I have a right to their opinion. Let's have a discussion. They say, you go in the bottom set because you're not smart. Right. So, you know, I just think it's been a long time where we've given some very uh, regressive rhetoric way too much credence. And so, but at the same time, not acknowledging a narrative 
from the diaspora. And so, That's again, awesome. you know, is why I just I wanted to create a show which really provides a platform for that discourse. Mm-hmm. So. Before we get into um, Bamus and how you came up with the concept, um, I want to go back to um, before you went into comedy. So I know you went to uni, studied business. Mm-hmm. Uh, you worked in some cool centres. Few, few, yeah. Oh my god, I think a cool centre is literally the worst job. Like I literally did that job and it was horrible. It's very bad, yeah. It's not, I mean, yeah, it's not great. I mean, I'm sure every creative has got a story about the jobs they had to do or used to do before yeah. they were able to either support themselves or pursue their creative aspirations. Mm-hmm. And yeah, they were terrible. I mean, yeah, right at the bottom of the rung of the ladder, I think, of the service industry. But at the same time, it really allowed me to make some astute observations that do benefit me now because I think one of the biggest uh, boons to my career, I would say, artistically, has been spending time on the other side of the microphone because... Right. Um, you did a lot of theory, right? Before you ended. Yeah, the- right. absolutely. And not just that, having the uh, practical application of said theory, because it's all fine mm-hmm. and thinking about things and talking about everyday life, but it's much better and you do it in much better depth uh, with much more relatability if you've actually experienced it. Mm-hmm. So, and you know, I think that's a big part of the appeal of comedy and why your more successful comedians do tend to prosper because, you know, they are the every man. They speak a language that most other people tend to understand. They, you, you speak from a position of experience and therefore, that experience is more likely to be shared by uh, your audience. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I did some terrible jobs, but they definitely taught me that uh, what I didn't want to do with my life. And I think, yeah, they definitely um, steeled my resolve in terms of working out a way to really maximize my potential. And I guess I think it's really an existential crisis that a lot of black people in the workforce kind of arrive at, mm-hmm. where, you know, like everybody else, they realize that, uh, you know, no one's going to make you rich at the expense of their own job. Right. Um, but at the same time as well is that I think a lot of the time, you know, many, many stories below the proverbial glass ceiling, uh, black people are met with a lot of, you know, uh, impediments to their progress. And I was just going to be like, I'm not having this. I didn't go to university and get into all these thousands of pounds of student loan. Well, to right. have, to literally have people in the office say, you might be uh, gone to university, but I'm still going to be your boss. Right. Like, I'm not here for that. So. Yeah. But then I think... I guess your experience of working in call centers, um, you know, probably was really good research, I imagine, for your role in Sunny D, where, you know, you were playing like a kind of frustrated, tired millennial trying to make your, you know, trying to make sense of the world and like clashing with family and friends and colleagues. So I guess it was good. That experience actually has, you know, you've been able to take that and kind of turn it into art. Um, and I guess with a lot of comedy is, you know, you, you have regular jobs that you do before you, I guess you make it big time and they work for really good anecdotes and stuff in your storytelling. So I guess that's what, that's how, I guess, working in a call centre probably played into your art. Um, yeah, de- definitely. But but really, really, I guess, on just on an interpersonal level, just meeting regular people with regular jobs right. and just looking at most uh, people within, I suppose, within a developed country in a capitalist society where their normal inclinations, their needs, wants and dreams are. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, I just, again, I, I think at the quantum of observational comedy, what you're trying to do is really capture the human spirit. That's why it works. And so I just think you normally tend to work just as a phenomenon is such a large part of most people's lives that, Mm -hmm. you know, you're probably going to get the idea of the best idea about humanity when you see people at work. So yeah, that was one of the good things. And also it just humbles you is, you know, it's why it's why now, even today where work may have slowed for myself and other peers, the idea of maybe if I having to get work or, 
you know, knowing that other comedians are returning to the workforce means mm-hmm. that I'm never pretentious about it. I don't take any position of superiority over my peers. And, you know, this, the creative industry is nothing set in stone. This could all end tomorrow. And right. if it still meant that I needed to go and work back in a call centre to provide for my family, like, you know, I have, I've been brought up with an immigrant work ethic. So, you know, I'm glad that comedy works and it's lucrative to an extent. But, boy, if I need to go back and hustle and go work in a call centre to make ends meet or to help my family, then, well, I'd have to do jokes there too. So. <laughs> No, it's true. I think a lot of creatives, yeah, they've all, you know, I know a lot of creatives who have worked in call centres and it does humble you. And I guess it's just, um, you know, you've got to make ends meet, you've got to do what you've got to do. And I guess the most important thing is, you know, it's not a forever thing. Um, it's always going to lead to something else because you're, um, you're building skills. You know, when I worked in a call centre, like my, I said that my name was Trixie Jones. Um, and I was like, it's Trixie Jones on behalf of the Business Finance Roundtable, because it's like, you know, and it's good experience and it's funny and you can, you know, you can, you can tell these stories, you know, with friends and you can tell it. It's, 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 it's an experience and I, and I think it's important that, you know, there are, there are some people that do work in a call centre and there are some people trying to forge a career while working in the call centre and I don't right. want them to think that I look at them and think, ugh, peasants, yeah. that's not really how I feel. It's, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's, it's more about capturing and, and, and just yeah for me it was more of a financial thing but at the same time yeah I don't look back on my employment history from the perspective of regret or from resentment because mm-hmm. I do believe that having that uh, experience amongst your the laity or you know your average layperson has helped me as a comedian to be a lot more relatable I find that a lot of uh, punters that visit comedy clubs from the beginning yeah. of my career and way up until as recently as like you know before lockdown you know, I think a lot, a lot of the time, uh, people who find it hard to relate to comedians from a very different social and economic background to them, right? And they go, and they tend to go so, so far. And one way to look is that, like, even I'd say, like, a large contingent of the more successful class of British comics do come from a middle class background, right. more of a privileged background, which is fine. You know, you can't control into which life you're born into, but by the same time, that kind of bodes uh, in a very uh, interesting way on a global scale because. If you, you know, if you do come from a wealthy family and your experiences are include those of privilege, for most people, they can't necessarily relate to that. And so it means that you can only appeal to a considerable minority. And so for me, how that manifests is the fact that when you look at most forbless for, uh, you know, global earnings for stand-up mm-hmm. comedians, while there are a lot of British comics that have a lucrative career, tends to be very much uh, localised within the UK and potentially Australia as opposed to our American contemporaries who tend to be in the top 10 of earners because of the large scale of relatability that they do have. Um, mm-hmm. I think the Americans, they're very honest about that, whether it is about like, you know, the uh, paradigm of work and employment or labor mm-hmm. or, you know, more taboo subjects like racism, which is something we are very reticent to discuss in the UK, mm-hmm. but it's something that globally the collective consciousness is aware of. So if you are a British person trying to act like racism doesn't exist with the same level of intensity, as mm-hmm. other developed nations, when you visit said nations and you're like, this is my life, they're going to be like, where are you from? I've never heard of a place like this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, It's like Notting Hill. When most people think of Notting Hill in the UK, the next word that comes up is carnival. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. But the film Notting Hill did not depict this and gave a very different um, aesthetic. Good point. Good point. A very aesthetic as to what people would think uh, Notting Hill was represented by. Mm-hmm. And so, again, you know, that will have a knock-on butterfly effect where if people do not see an aesthetic that's accurate that reflects the uh, diversity of uh, the UK, particularly in areas of London, then when they hear people like ourselves crying out about this, then obviously people will be naturally um, 
perturbed as to why black people are complaining with such intensity because they've been misled by the representation of ourselves and um, of our homes and on mainstream media. Mm, right. I think that's really interesting because I feel like we're still not really reflected in the in the mainstream media. And I think that you've touched on the fact that you're, you feel like your role is to, um, you know, give flowers to the 30-somethings, you mm -hmm. know, black men in, you know, the UK who have now been subjected to only working in sport or news. And you're yeah. trying, right. And that, that is very true. I think there is, um, I think being a black creative in this country is that you, it feels like you have to be in a box. You can't just be like a Louis Theroux and, you know, decide that you're going to do, go and travel the world and do, you know, do a documentary on porn or polyamory or tigers. You have to be subjected to a specific box and you can't be outside that box. And if you are, then you don't have, you're almost like you don't have a career. You just get forgotten about. Absolutely, absolutely. For men and women, members of the non-binary community, right. uh, I think for a uh, for the diaspora of a particular generation, mm -hmm. it has been very difficult. And I've seen how that has kind of played out and the problems that have uh, arisen as a result of that. Mm -hmm. um, so I remember myself personally, I remember the last, I'd say, nigh on healthy representation of black people probably ended in the early noughties with kind of like the decline of Richard Blackwood's career following his uh, record deal and the like. And I felt like uh, the industry kind of shut shop on opportunities of black people because around the time of Circa Richard Blackwood, his predecessors would have been like the A-Force with Ginny Ashray and himself and, uh, yeah. you know, shows like Brothers and Sisters. Mm -hmm. uh, before that, you'd had the real McCoy, Desmond's, you know, Pork Pie having a spin-off, mm -hmm. um, you know, Three Non-Blondes being on BBC Three as well, mm -hmm. um, uh, Miss Jocelyn. So, you know, there was quite a decent amount of representation, but, you know, it's very strange when you think about something like Red Dwarf, which in my eyes is like a BBC institution, but then the only time you see someone like even Danny John Jules again is in Murder in Paradise, uh, kind of confined to appearing on these Caribbean aesthetics, because mm -hmm. I guess as a black Briton, he's more passable than an actual Caribbean actor. Right. But in that, in that time where black opportunities uh, disappeared to the tune of the fact that Sunny D, my sitcom hadn't, is the first sitcom with a majority black cast that had appeared on the BBC in 20 years. Wow. Or been on British TV in 20 years. And so for me, that's like a real issue. That's a, that's a serious issue, but and that's, that's an entire generation. And what that has meant is that for the successive generations, they have only really seen any kind of quasar representation of themselves in the form of music. And even that has only uh, been more egalitarian over the, with the explosion of the internet. You know, mm. I'd say if you look at personalities now, whether it's Amaya Jama, uh, Munya Chihuahua, a Chunks in Philly, um, Harry Pinero et al., it's amazing that they have been able to uh, transcend their talent and their personalities and so many other opportunities. But without a broadband connection, that would be nigh on impossible if these same right. people had to subsist on mainstream media to recognize their potential as presenters or hosts, etc. And what it's meant is that but at the same time, like you said, it means that black creativity has kind of been forced to become some form of monolith where they don't really distinguish on our creativity in terms of like our music being very separate from classic music, being separate from contemporary music, being separate from stand-up comedy versus character comedy and all of the other subgenres that you and variances that you see within uh, I guess what's regarded as white British comedy. Uh, whereas black British comedy tends to be the same monolith as music. And that's evidenced by the fact that if you think about some of the more prolific comics that have realized success more recently. Mm -hmm. Munya Chihuahua is, has done so because he does very good parodies of pre-existing music. 
uh, Michael Dapper and uh, became Big Shaq and rose to fame because he did a fire in the booth. Mm-hmm. Mo Gilligan uh, obviously has proven his success and viability as a star, but that came from him having to mimic different types of grime MCs mm-hmm. um, in order for him to go viral. Which, right. uh, you know, is just, and, then, and then doing a show with Big Nasty himself, who is a former grime rapper, has become a comedy personality through mm-hmm. his viral videos. And for me, like it's good on the one hand, opportunity is always good to see for uh, people that look like ourselves. But at the same time, like you said, it does leave us in a rather restrictive box where the spectrum of topics uh, for debate seem to revolve around uh, music and women and a lot of, I guess, adolescent preoccupations, whether it's like clothes and food and girls. So then you end up arriving at a point where you'll be in your late 30s to 40s. And basically at the point in your life where you're at your most economically and politically mobile. Right. You're fully grown. This is when you're raising your children. Yeah. When you're, you're, this is when you actively participate in um, legislation and government policy because they affect you directly because you'll probably be paying taxes while you're mm-hmm. trying to forge a career, paying, yeah, you know, paying off a mortgage or renting a property and, you know, actively participating in regular grown folk shit that most people aren't doing. The mm. problem is, is that that is an archetype for the diaspora that is seldom seen in the media. And so for many, in that same 20 years I'm describing, if you're a black person that's our age and you were looking to domestic television to be represented, you would have not seen it. So half, in half that time, if 10 years of, not, of seeing more shows about robots and cupcakes and foxes have been on TV, you're going to be like, well, I don't watch TV in the UK because I, I don't see anybody like me on there. And then right. for those that you do see on there, because they are so molded to more have a narrative, which is a much more reminiscent of, you know, middle-class white people than other black people, then people find it very hard to in- engage with these people. And those guys as well find that in order for them to realize their creative aspirations, they have to dilute their act and make it more affable to white audiences. So it becomes unrecognizable to their previously black audience as well. Mm-hmm. So as well as having the representation, for the representation that does exist, there's a large uh, cultural rift between them and the diaspora at large. And, you know, that was something I needed to work against because I went to uni outside of the country, outside, sorry, outside of London, as a city in the country, mm-hmm. in Yorkshire, where I was aware that there are some people that live in Yorkshire who they don't see black people unless they see them on TV. And normally the capacity in which they saw them would be like in Match of the Day, whereby they're getting sound bites and very little social commentary from mm-hmm. their black idols. Or they see them in music where, again, the subject matter does not really allow for you to have an honest and in-depth uh, account of the black British journey and people need to be able to hear and speak uh, to and from other people in order for them to form a more rounded uh, perspective of those people. Yeah, It's been a dark ages for dark people for a, a good generation. Mm-hmm. And even though like younger people are now starting to enjoy success on the internet and the like, the problem has been is that now the curation of this same, these same creatives uh, isn't taking place, uh, you know, at the same rate that it should and what you find is that it's fine when people are able to garner large audiences on the internet but making that translate onto streaming platforms can be a bit more difficult mm-hmm. and what you tend to find is that um uh black people or creatives their positions seem to be interchangeable so you know someone like big nasty can do a panel show but no one's going to ask professor green to host live at the apollo because professor green is historically a rapper and so white media is aware that it would be a bad fit but they're happy for black people to be interchangeable in any kind of panel show or format. But at the same time, like, you know, a white person knows that Paul Gascoigne is probably not going to be the person that appears on, have I got news for you? Cause there's an, there's an understanding of like where people's different disciplines lie. And so the battle not only is for our representation, but it's also for the distinction within that representation, whereby 
we are in the best kind of fit places. You know, mm-hmm. again, another example being the whole thing where uh, Obama was elected and the first person that Jeremy Paxman and the rest of BBC Newsnight consulted for their viewpoint on that was Dizzy Rascal. <laughs> it's just like, if, you know, when you have an election, like no one's going to go to Dappy from Endubs right. and find out what he thinks about, you know, the intensity of politics in Greece. So it's like, why would you go to that? Right. It's, it's, I think it's, um, I think that's, the, that is often the problem is that we become spokespeople, you know, and I think there was an interview that, um, if this isn't the one you're talking about, where Dizzy Rascal was on, I can't remember. I think it was the second one. On, it was the second one with Piers, with Piers Morgan. Yeah, and he yeah. was uh, he was saying this time, don't make me do that again. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, because he, he, right. he, he and, it's, and it's you know as much as it's entertainment and it's new and it's refreshing for you know white Britain in that sense for black people like us, it is trauma and it's like this is what we have to deal with all the time. So and also. And the, no. for us, and the trauma for us, Jackie, is that, like, you know, it's not like we, we, we hate seeing Dizzy Rascal or someone like Dizzy Rascal on TV. It's because every black person is aware is that based on his narrative, mm. our perspective, as our collective perception is mm. going to change based on this whole how they see Dizzy Rascal. It's like, when you're a black person and you watch, like, Big Brother, when the housemate comes, you're basically on tenterhooks because, you know, whatever that person says, they're going to yeah. reflect on all of us yeah. so if that person says I'm not too big on showers the next day at the water cooler at work or by the photocopier now you've got to field questions as to why do you, so you don't shower and what do you do then you know what I mean it's very different for ourselves because we, we're so seldom seen like and that's and that's going to affect white audiences as well if we're so seldom seen they can only go on what they see so if these, yeah. these mis- mis- mismatches continue then there's never going to be an accurate reflection because like I said people can only go on what they see but then what happens is that if people see what they believe to be uh, a representation of black people, even mm-hmm. as even when it's something like Ali G, who is being done by Sasha Baron Cohen, who's mimicking a Pakistani, who's mimicking a black person, which is not a black person. But what it means is that there's enough very shallow and superficial indicators like big chains and bling and... Good. And also, it's because I'm black and it's like everybody used to say that in school and it's like... Yeah, exactly. And for me, if you say that to me... It's not. It's because I fucking hate you, and you're an idiot and unoriginal. And I, I is a, and and, but, and, it, and that used to be epitomised the problem whereby people repeat these catchphrases and these very shallow things. And what happens is, is that you'll see this these quasi black or Afro aesthetics which mm-hmm. don't actually represent us. And then it's just more of an objectification. So there's women shaking bums at allergy shows, but no one's actually speaking. Or you know, you see black women shaking their bums in a Lily Allen video when she's doing a video about objectification. But it's like, well, why don't you speak to them? about their experience instead of just using them to shake their bums and stuff. It's like, it's all well and good having people dance and singing behind you. But, you know, again, we're not really having a discourse if you're not allowing the people that are most affected by or represent this uh, group uh, the opportunity to speak on their own behalf. Mm-hmm. And actually, um, you know, you touched on this in Bamus, but, you know, we're losing our UK talent to America. Um, and, you know, it isn't just because there's more opportunity, but there's also, I think as a minority, you can speak to millions of black audiences. So like Jeannie Ashray, um, you know, she had, I remember reading an interview where she had talked about the fact that she was sick of just being the regular black face on Mock the Week. And actually if she didn't go to America, she would still be the regular face on Mock the Week. And she said that there was a time when um little miss jocelyn got her show and she just thought they're not going to have us both on at the same time yeah. so 
I've got to go. It's time for me to go because of the nightclub policy that we yeah. have is one in, one out, you know, which is, not, which is, which is so unfair. And I think that, um, you know, touching on what we talked about, about how I think black people, we have a strong collective identity. And I think one thing that's a privilege, I think, with, you know, with white people is that you're seen as an individual. Yeah, we're, we're seen as absolutely. a collective so it's a, it's a function of conditioning individuality it's such a massive function of conditioning as well because like yeah. i said you're, and you're not doing it in a derogatory way but even when you use the term minority this is how we it's been suggested to us to mislead us we are right. not the minority if right. you are white anglo-saxon protestant in the us or in the uk on mm. a global scale you are a minority there's like right. 70 million people here 300 million people in, in the states there are 0.8 billion sub-Saharan Africans living just on the continent alone. Doesn't even include people who are politically identified as black, whether it's indigenous Australians, people from Papua New Guinea, uh, the Seychelles, Chagos Islands, just to name like the Southern hemisphere in terms of where the diaspora are based. So even when we use the term minority and saying that our British people connect with a the minority, they're not really a minority because they're, they're connecting with people that are, you know, a large contingent on continental Europe, in the Americas, so we have been fooled into this idea that we speak from a position of a minority where we speak to a much larger audience. Like, for example, the largest stand-up comedian in, this, in, the, in the world is Russell Peters, who is an Asian-Canadian, because he is able to speak to a large contingent of people on, in the Eastern Hemisphere. So he can sell out in Mumbai, he can sell out in um, the United Arab Emirates. As I said, because of the experience of white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, however people feel, however dominant it's been, it's still a... Uh, minority narrative which mm. means the ability to identify with it is very limited and mm. obviously that is created through racial hierarchy and supremacy where if you're considered to be more dis distinct and better than us well of course people can't relate to you mm -hmm. but um yeah i think i think really in terms of our representation how we've been treated uh, a as a monolith is a uh, disgusting because we are fee payers and we're taxpayers so we should have that kind of representation on that front also i think it's embarrassing at the fact that you know the world very clearly and you know america very overtly is outspoken about its uh, platitudes regarding race, particularly those of uh, African descent. We're seeing it all the time. And yet, despite that, through the same merit of chattel slavery and uh, just black people being in the presence of American homes through the media, it's very clear that for those who are interested, they can be, they are provided with an insight into African-American life. From my perspective as comedians, it's like, you know, Comedians of my generation, you know, you have, you have Kevin Hart's today, but even before that, you would have had a Chris Rock, and before that, an Eddie Murphy, before that, a Richard Pryor, before that, a, a Red Fox, before, you know. So they have a long-lasting transgenerational legacy of the African-American experience wow. in that form of art and culture alone, whereas in the UK, you know, like I said, Jeannie Ashray is aware, despite the fact that she is headlining at every comedy club in the UK and doing Mock the Week, she isn't given an opportunity to even get a uh, show commission. There are comedians who have nowhere near the success of Gina who will be given commission after commission after commission. And um, again, like I said, it's it's not a function of a meritocracy. So yeah, um, us, us hemorrhaging talent uh, is something that I think we've all gotten used to. And I'd be lying if I said it wasn't something I considered so much to the point whereby from the first time my, my parents wanted me to the, U, the United States in 1990. Mm -hmm. And I think already then they became aware of the uh, comparative large opportunities available to me in the States. So I'm also a resident of the United States because I had my uh, green card processed. And oh, okay. Yeah, so mine's came through like 2012. So, you know, for that, part of that is for me to be like, you know, if I find that my opportunities are, are still being marginalised at a certain point in the UK, I am more than prepared to leave these shores. Well, we don't, Dane, we don't want to lose you. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. But you know, at the same time, 
I, I also, what I also want to do is uh, I also want to extend a bridge as well, where it's almost seen as a natural progression that if you are a good and accomplished artist, there's no reason why you shouldn't be in America. On the other hand, because you know, when it comes to the music, you know, black Britons and you know, black performers in general had to suffer with the British invasion, whereby we saw the rise of success of like the Rolling Stones and groups of that nature, who themselves were mimicking black rock and roll stars from 20 years prior. Mm-hmm. And, you know, today you look at it this way, like now, now through the merit of the internet, black artists are able to prosper, not just in the UK, but in the States, so much so that 10% of all music that's being streamed is, is uh, British artists. But prior to that, you could only, be, you, only if you were Ed Sheeran, Adele or Amy Winehouse, could you enjoy American success. And again, the success comes from the fact that these three non-black artists were successful at emulating black music. Right. Because there's nothing Amy Winehouse would have done that Billie Holiday didn't. Mm. Or that Adele did that, like, Akeisha White couldn't do, like, narratively, or even Nao. Oh, my gosh, Keisha White. Right, or, or yeah, Akeisha White, or, or Beverly Knight, you know, vocally, or and Emily Sande. Yeah. You know, people who are, you know, vocal legends with unmistakable voices that can, you know, vocally, a Beverly Knight or Emily Sande can go toe-to-toe with any American vocalist, as could Leona Lewis. But even even when even when Leona realized her success on British TV, because my, Simon Cowell believed in her so much, the first thing he did was send her to work under the auspices of Clive Davis, because he's probably aware that the competence in order to develop an artist, mm. a black artist of that with that much potential, is not going to happen in the UK. Right. I even read an article recently by Labyrinth uh, in Esquire magazine, right. where he was lamenting the fact that after Pass Out came out and he had a record deal, he signed with Psycho and did his song Earthquake, then did another song called Let the Sun In. Oh, let the sunshine. He's showing the, the, va- the range. Like Labyrinth is a producer. He's a, a vocalist. He's a rapper. He's a, he can sing ballads. He's very talented, and he's also a producer. But because British eyes have been deprived of a, poly- a musical polymath of that nature in this country, in America, that's seen as a given to be a music he rapper, producer. Euphoria. Music. He, did he produce the music for Euphoria? That new. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And that, that's this isn't someone who is not even 40 yet, who not only was an accomplished musician and able to produce one of the biggest songs in the UK, contemporary songs in the UK, but he's also able to score like TV shows. Again, I really am very doubtful about the fact that he'd be able to have those opportunities or realise those to the maximum if he was staying in the UK. And, you know, that's, and, you know it, at the time, I even noticed then, it's like if you looked at the successful co- musicians of the time, like whether it's Tiny Temper, Tinchy Strider or an N-Dubs, chipmunk not taking anything away from them they are very successful and very accomplished artists but it really seemed that there was this drive to infantilize their aesthetic like he's a tiny temper and he's a tinchy strider and n dubs with a little zed is cute and kitsch and chipmunk is like an is a non-threatening uh, rodent so it's like even then it was still trying to whitewash black creativity to make it more palatable or perceived as more palatable palatable to white audiences Whereas you fast forward now, like, you know, a good 10 plus years, white guys in Bognor Regis, or they know who um, Giggs is. Yeah. And, and you know, he, he enjoys success there. And it just makes me think, you know, at a time where you had emerging talent like Sway and Baby Blue and uh, Pirelli and like, all these other rappers who kind of had a slight level of buzz, how different their careers would have been had they give, been given the opportunity and visibility of their white peers 20 years ago. Right. Yeah. That's how I feel when I think about... Do you remember when Funky House was popping off? Yeah, absolutely. I do. Oh, my days. And and even then, it it could only do so well because, like, a lot of the raves are shut. 
Yeah. Something else kind of got big off of the back of like Grime being prevented to be able to prosper and then going into a decline. And uh, obviously UK Garage, because, you know, I grew up, I remember the times when So Solid were the, one of the biggest acts in the UK. Yeah. Right. Then their ability to go anywhere was kind of banned. And so, and then it led to their kind of dissolution. And then it's very coincidental that a group like Blazing Squad, who follows the same thing of being a collective of like several members. Yeah, a song that they didn't write. Yeah, they did. Bones Sense and Harmony, right? There you go. So they've taken a black song, you know, a black aesthetic of having multiple members in your garage collective or rap collective. Yeah. And it's just been whitewashed to be more palatable to British audiences. That's so interesting. Anyway, N-dubs is cool, but before N-dubs, we're doing remixing songs and doing ha ha and sounding like uh-huh. that kind of. But that's but that sound was being done with um, Big Brothers when they was doing my favorite things. Okay, right. Okay, yeah. And then all of a sudden, because one mm-hmm. person brings up weed, the entire group is condemned because of one person bringing weed back from Amsterdam. But now you live in a society where we're very seem to be very comfortable and au fait with using uh, marijuana-based products, and even the biggest distributor and importer of marijuana in the UK was a guy called uh, Howard Marks. And his autobiography was called Mr. Nice. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's very strange that like, you know, we can make, we can uh, conflate drug paraphernalia and criminality with black groups. But when a white mm-hmm. guy does it, he's more of a hippie and he's being Mr. Nice and he's just a little bit of weed, man. Right. Uh, yeah. I think all of these things kind of feed into the uh, deprivation of opportunities that we've kind of had. And uh, yeah, it was a large part of the uh, impetus for me to uh, create as I do. But this is why, you know, Sunny D and Bamus are so important. And actually, um, Sunny D, because, I mean, that was Gabemi Sola's Ikumelo's first comedy debut, right? And first now she's on a... First TV debut. First TV debut. Yeah. So she won a, and she now won a BAFTA for uh, her show, Brain and Gear, for the BBC. And then obviously, Catherine, Catherine Ryan, before she was on Sunny D, had no prior TV experience. So, you know, you are putting people on and say in the same way what you've done with Bamus as well um with your um NAS index and you you know you had all the name you know you had Henry and you had lots of people who I guess in the in the black entertainment world we know but in the kind of white entertainment world they may on they may or they maybe they do know maybe they don't know and so you know you're you're putting people on which I think is really important because you know who's going to do it for us someone's got to you know we, exactly. we, we're going to yeah, do exactly. it for ourselves. And I think yeah, that's yeah. why Amos is really, really important. And actually, I'm quite interested in your transition from doing stand-up to TV. Mm-hmm. How was that kind of process from when you came up with the concept for Sunny D and how did that come about then pitching that? To, did you pitch that then to BBC Three? And then um, you, how many episodes did you have? Is it four episodes? I think yes. Yeah. So yeah. four episodes for the series itself uh, uh, following the pilot. So... Mm-hmm. Sunny D began with uh, the BBC Comedy Commissioner Shane Allen at the time. He came to see me performing in Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was, and um, he had approached myself and my management with the opportunity to participate in the scheme by the BBC called Feed My Funny, where mm-hmm. they do offer up-and-coming uh, creators the opportunity to write a one-off um, experimental show for the BBC for BBC Three and see how mm-hmm. it works. And so Sunny D kind of was going to. So I guess Sunny D as a format, you know, we kind of flitted between it being quasi Chappelle show-esque or maybe being more reminiscent of the Ent style that you see, in famous style you see in Bamus, um, and then agreeing for it to be a sitcom, which is kind of reflective of my life. And initially, even then, then the editorial was kind of mimicking 
some of my stand up and how that kind of plays out into sketches. Mm-hmm. And then yeah, and then and then we kind of went for the more uh, I guess classical sitcom narrative, but with just yeah my unique touch on it. And um, then yeah, really Sunny when Sunny D uh, became the opportunity came along, it was me really trying to on the one hand create a space where I could aesthetically define uh, stereotypes. I felt like prior to Sunny D, most of the representations of um, nuclear black families were not particularly uh, accurate. Um, I think. I, I don't want to speak for everybody, and but you know, black people don't just live on council estates. <laughs> That's not the reality. <laughs> Particularly for a winter generation that came here who had no concept of government receivership or criminality, because for you to have come to the UK, Windrush, you wouldn't be able to have a criminal record anyway. So, you know, my parents had no experience of that, and I never had that kind of experience growing up. So I wanted to reflect that. Also, um, on with uh, Sonny D, I also wanted it to be. Um, intra-racially uh, representative. So obviously, uh, Bemi Camillo being of Nigerian descent, as was David Ajayo, but mm-hmm. both of them being uh, seasoned and well-trained uh, Shakespearean actors. And so I wanted to show on one hand that not only do black people are able to tread the boards, but they can translate that into TV very well to the tune of like later receiving mm-hmm. the BAFTA for Bemi, obviously. Um, and then also having Sasha Frost uh, being of dual heritage and, you know, part of that being based in... Uh, uh, from being from Bristol, where again, you could argue another marginalised group of being from white working class outside of London and the home counties. Right. So that was important. Uh, my mother was played by Liz Humes Dawson, who's of dual heritage, and her uh, father is from Sierra Leone. And my cousin was played by Kem Chidifornian, who is also now the producer of Famalam and got his opportunity following Sunny D. Mm-hmm. And uh, Kem G's from uh, Cameroon. And so it was having, you know, we were, I'm proud to say that of the Britons that appeared in Sunny D, 40 of them. Uh, of well, of an immigrant background, both on screen and behind the camera, so it's definitely about giving people uh, a bring in because I feel like all uh, endeavors of self determination begin by first people coming together and asserting what rights they want for themselves. And so I really just feel like we'd all do better kind of working together. And also because I I, I guess when I try to create, especially in terms of these formats, and it's uh, it's bigger than myself. It's it's like you know I look at my predecessors and my idols like the Chappelle show obviously put uh, Dave Chappelle in a uh, elevated position and deserved position in comedy but for those who are massive comedy fans we also know that he worked with Neil Brennan on the Chappelle show he also had Bill Bear on the show he had Eddie um, Griffin on the show obviously it allowed for Charlie Murphy to begin to forge a career mm-hmm. um, Donnell Rawlings um, and that's just to name a few of you know the amazing people that appeared in the show and so for me it's like Sunny, famous and Sunny D are just reflections of the fact that I have been given opportunities to realize my aspirations and I have to try and find that same uh, spark within my peers who I work with. And right. yeah, in the same way that I was given an opportunity to make things work, it's the same thing I just want to pass on and, and uh, yeah, pay it forward and I do it with people who believe fully in their abilities. So yeah, it's, for me, it's like, you know, I, I look at someone like Wiley as eccentric as it is, but it can't be denied that he has provided a scene and opportunity for so many other uh, musicians to come up from under him or around him and uh i just want to do the same i really want to do the same pass the baton on essentially pass the, and just you know what just not just pa- pass the baton on but just make an entire stadium whereby it's just seen as a given because like i said it was so surprising to find that you're the first black britain to be nominated at the world's largest arts festival and so mm-hmm. for me it's kind of like well is that down to the fact that people feel marginalized probably partially and also a lack of awareness and so yeah again a, a better way of describing it is that like how much the West knew about martial arts before Bruce Lee, mm. following Bruce Lee. Mm. And 
I want to leave that kind of same impact whereby okay. it's never going to be a point of mystique for people to be like, what are black people like in Britain? Like, you're a national people. treasure. One day I will be. Um, but at the same time, I, uh, I'd rather be a, a, a treasured somewhere other than regions, isn't it? It's bigger than countries. <laughs> so, yeah, just, 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 just um, a, a good brick in the wall that, uh, towards freedom. You know, I was going to, uh, you know, your show, Sunny D, actually reminds me a lot of um, Everybody Hates Chris. And I was going to say, you know, does Chris Rock inspire you? Because I can see, oh, you know, his comedy is also very socially conscious in the same way that yours, are, yours is. So I was going to ask you, you know, who inspires you? But I assume it's Chris Rock Absolutely. as well as others. Probably, yeah. probably, yeah, that's probably the person I've, I've tried to close imitate with. The, and he's a real goofball, you know, and that's what I like about him. I, as am I. So and so are you, So basically for me, when I was 15, I went to watch a comedy live first. At mm -hmm. a show in Catford in Southeast London at the Broadway Theatre, and uh, it, and it's a frequent place where a lot of like uh, globally successful immigrant actors come over. So Oliver Samuels would be there quite uh -huh. often and stuff. Blue, Blue Mountain Theatre, and these this is like a production company or a theatre production company that will put on shows for black audiences. Like you know, Anthony Mild put on amazing shows there. Mm -hmm. I was Russell Peters, um, Leo Muhammad of uh, Real McCoy fame. And D.L. Hughley, obviously, who is the now the podcaster who's on the fix on Netflix, but initially started off as a compare um, on BET's Comic View. So, one of the funniest compares I've ever seen. So, that was the first part where I was like, this is amazing. And I can't even put a word in this experience. So, the act of performing comedy, I saw it then and I loved it and making people laugh. But then when I saw and listened to Chris Rock's album, so the first time I saw it, I listened, I listened to it. So, when I listened to him do stand up and being a black, I was like, this is what I want to do with my life. Wow. Yeah, so so Chris Rock was yeah that was he lit the spark. That that's the person I I think I definitely endeavoured to emulate the most. Like I said, in terms of like social commentary and impact on the uh, culture and art form, I definitely want to do with my career what Chris Rock has it's, done with his. It's interesting because I also feel like um, there is a massive gap in the market in terms of at least with you know UK black talent in the way that we address race, and I feel like you fit into that gap quite well. I know you've mentioned in, I think in an article, you talked about the fact that, you know, you feel you have to discuss race at a foundation level. Yeah. That hasn't been addressed in depth by your predecessors, which I found really interesting. Um, because yeah, your comedy is very, I think it's, um, it's witty, it's brilliant, but it's also, I think, um, because I guess as a, as a black comedian, um, you know, you have to address, I think you have to address your race because it is a massive part of your lived experience. But I think there's a way of doing it. I suppose there's a, there's an art to doing it where you have a black and a white audience that understand that. And I think yeah. you do that really well. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely what I endeavoured to, I endeavour to do that uh, very much in that I don't walk on stage under the presumption or uh, with the a tone of uh, accusation when I'm performing to a white audience and presuming that they are racist or hold racist views. Yeah. But I am aware that a lot of people, like I said, in that 20 years, which was the black people dark ages of the UK, mm -hmm. there are people that have not seen any aesthetic, any heard any narrative or any anything regarding black people. And so all of their perception is based on what they are able to see. So because of that, I have to presume sometimes that people's knowledge of the black experience in the UK over the last 20 years is uh, nigh on nil because when you show up and they only see black people, anytime they see black people, they're like, well, they're just going to be pissed off about racism. Mm -hmm. Thinking that we don't really think about other stuff. And so yeah. that's going to make, if you, if you are, an, if you are a 30 something year old white woman 
and you live in a, a town, a satellite town in Middle England, and every time you see a black person, they're screwing their face up because they're angry about to start cussing Piers Morgan, then you're going to be less inclined to listen to them because you're not really predisposed to be dealing with that conflict. You don't know what it stems from, yeah. how it stems from, and you probably and, and you also probably lack the discursive tools to have that discussion. So for me, it's about, yeah, I had to kind of start at a very rudimentary level, also because of the fact that with the diaspora, for those who live outside of metropolitan cities like London or Manchester or Liverpool or Bristol, uh -huh. your experience is very different to our own. But that yeah. shouldn't invalidate your experience. Like, you know, right. Black people that do not know about what it's like to go and get your trim at a barbershop and see mandem everywhere. There's not a black people that know what it's like to casually go to a hair shop and pick out like, you know, right now, yaki and stuff like that. But not because they don't care or they don't have an affinity with their culture. It's just they don't have that in their environment. So right. I needed to create a narrative whereby these people wouldn't feel necessarily excluded. Um, also well, that's amazing. Because yeah, I think you don't want to feel like you're less black. Because yeah, that's because that, that. the problem. Because if you do feel less black, you're less likely to engage with something that is professing to be a clear representation of blackness. Uh -huh. And you know, also we cannot deny like on a, on a biological level, blackness versus whiteness is not something you can define scientifically. And I say that in terms of the fact that, you know, people will say stuff like, but what about mixed race people? Well, Barack Obama has a white mother. He was still regarded as the black president, which means it's not a function of biology, it's a function of politics. So uh -huh. right. I am aware that there are some black people that do not share the same black truths as the rest of us, don't identify mm -hmm. with blackness politically. But I'm also aware that uh, there are some like people being mixed race. That's been very that's been generational in places like Steph in Liverpool or in mm -hmm. Bristol. There is a wealth of people that have had a long going, honest and genuine mix of cultures of being of dual heritage. Again, just because you appear to be half black, I can't invalidate your blackness. I have no base to do so. But right. I hope that in what I'm talking about, you will still see come some kind of mutuality in our experience. Yeah. Um, in the same way that, like you know, for a long time. Yeah, and you know, look at when things intensified so much here, where like there was a year of the MOBOs where no dental artists were allowed to participate in the MOBOs because they were perceived to be homophobic, which is fair. But again, it's very ironic that now the conversation on social media is about free speech. None of these people are so vocal for these dental artists, but they're very fine to hear like, you know, people with white supremacist platitudes or regressive ideology regarding women or treatment of women. They're like, everyone deserves a platform. But no one was saying this when, you know, they said the elephant man or like, you know, people were doing like chichi man songs. It wasn't OK. But mm -hmm. I don't agree with it. But at the same time, like I said, it means that people are used to a particular narrative and stereotype about black people, even black members of the LGBT community. So, again, they feel a disconnect with what they perceive to be uh, largely West African slash Afro-Caribbean slash uh, Christian conservative contingent. Mm -hmm. as if black people can't be liberal as well. And so again, for me, it's like removing all of these pre-existing notions about blackness and at least creating a narrative that is accessible to anyone who themselves, not has, they don't have to be black, but if you are aware of black or identify black or want to participate in a conversation which acknowledges the existence of the diaspora, then this is by the, the method by which we can do that and kind of start off from the beginning. Because I think the difference between us and the Americans is that even though obviously America itself is a melting pot, just like the UK, the African-American identity is a recognized. It's stronger. It's stronger, <laughs> recognized. Whereas Black Britain is not, if I say where you're from, you not, won't normally say you're Brit Black British. You might be like, you know, from the UK, but my family are from Nigeria. Um, uh, yeah. My family are here, but my family are from Grenada. Whereas <laughs> I guess I've been trying to work about establishing a... Uh, well, you're giving us a cultural a, identity. Yeah, a post-modern a post cultural identity is kind of what I'm yeah. working towards on a larger scale. Yeah, exactly that, Jackie. 
give yes, us this, I, I feel like once we once we're together and you know we can say we are black britain we are a galvanized contingent of people within uh-huh. the uk and, and continental europe on a large scale if i'm honest like even as black european once mm-hmm. we can do that then we're able to cement our seat at the table and then we can be wow. open that up to our you know to like there there are because there are certain nuances of the black experience that i am not suitable to discuss whether it's being a black woman or a West African black woman, or yeah. a West African black woman who is Igbo versus Yoruba versus yeah. Hausa. Ver- you know what I mean? So, but once we get out there first, we can start adding this nuance to our experiences and really mm-hmm. showing that kind of wealth because you cannot, like, people from Newcastle and people from Scotland are called Jocks and Geordies, right? And they're only separated by a border. Mm. But there is no way you are allowed to confuse the two of those. And it is a recognized distinction right. that we've been in British art for many years. People who are from Glasgow and Edinburgh, like Celtics and Rangers, like if you look at football in the UK, these derbies or these rivalries that exist along only borders or technically the equivalent of postcodes separate them. Uh But people realise that there are distinct subcultures and those are respected and we deserve the same. I a thousand percent. A thousand. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And that's why I think Bamus is great because, yeah, you're, you're, I think it's like, I feel like I'm, I know the black British identity, but the whole, but we know the black British identity, but the exactly. whole world doesn't. And exactly. I think that's why Bamus is, is perfect because yeah, you're giving us a cultural identity because yeah, the African-American identity is strong. They're like, I'm African-American, whereas yeah, I'm like, oh, like I'm from London, but like, you know, even when you're ticking boxes of where you're from, I'm like, do I tick black African? Do I tick black British? I don't know. And my mom's like, my dad's like, you're African. And my mom's like, you're British. And I'm like, I don't really know, guys. Exactly that. And and I just think, I just think at least if there is a foundation uh-huh. where you are, then, you know, Having identity alone is an important part of the human consciousness. And, all, and also, um, you know, in Bamus, um, I always knew Dipsy was black. So when you were like, because I was getting them vibes. What's even crazier is that uh, the uh, 
the actor who played Dipsy is a guy called John Simmet, uh, who is not only an actor, but is also a uh, big, big supporter of the black comedy industry in the UK. He runs something called Upfront Comedy, John Simmet. Mm-hmm. And John Simmett has been responsible. Like John Simmett put money in my hand very early in my, in, in my career. And he's really been largely responsible for providing, you know, opportunities for young black creatives, as well as, um, you know, bringing uh, comedians over from um, different parts of the world. Like I met another comic uh, who's Eritrean called Ahmed Berhan. He's originally from Sweden. But again, it's like being able to meet like-minded individuals from Europe with a very similar but nuanced experience from our African-American uh, cousins. Um, yeah, it's great to see someone do that as well. So it's, it's, a, it's the potential for it is great where you now have that social network where it's like, you know, he'd be a part of uh, being Dipsy and Teletubbies as well as empowering other comedians and stuff. And, you know, I look at, I look in that same respect that like, you know, the next kind of apron pulling uh, kids phenomenon that's real successful on TV. Why should a black person not be included in that? A thousand percent. Also, um, I hear ancestrally mm-hmm. your Ebo. Yes. Okay. Um, I'm not Ebo, I'm Yoruba, but like, it's all good. It's all good. It's all good. You're Nigerian. I'm Nigerian. Like this is great. I'm just, I'm just happy to know where I came from. You know, I'm really happy to know where I came from. It's a uh, very humbling and flattering to know. I went to the uh, museum in uh, Grenada, and essentially they able based on your name to trace your lineage. Yeah. And I think yeah, a large part of uh, yeah, I mean, a large part of the Caribbean is 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 mainly like you know what would have been the Gold Coast and Nigerians and Ghanaians and stuff. And I think even there's certain dialects you find within Maroons in Jamaica that basically sound like Twi in Ghana and stuff as well. Um, so, um, but again, yeah, it's, it's being Igbo is cool. I probably have a lot more to learn. I've done some very rudimentary research and uh, some of my friends have kind of educated me. But um, yeah, it's cool. As soon as I found out, like I was able to, I used to find jollof rice spicy, but that book. Okay. <laughs> it's not spicy. <laughs> <laughs> Nigerian food is the hottest food I've had. It's oh, amazing. It is, no, no, that's not a bad thing because you know what? Because again, that is something that I, for me, that is applauded that Nigeria deserves to be acknowledged for because people normally tend to think that like Asian cuisine is hot and like curries or South Indian cuisine is hot. They're not testing Nigerian food. And since <laughs> I've had it, since I've had it, my tolerance for spicy food went through the roof exponentially. Like, before I had Nigerian food, I used to be like, nah, now I'm like Tabasco sauce on scrambled eggs, going crazy, so. That's what I did this morning. Spice on everything, like. On everything. Hot sauce in my bag, because I I can't eat food without hot sauce. I'm with it. I'm with it, I'm with it, I'm with it. I mean, and you know, I even now watching the resurgence and the rise of the face of British Nigerian culture and is in music and, and excel, excellent in, in areas of academia and you know just nowhere where you I mean the, the, I think the youngest ad, ad, admissions to Cambridge University for their mathematics have been two Nigerian children and currently I think the kid with the largest IQ in the UK is also Nigerian and, I'm, and it's like even for me it's like we watch films like Ocean's Eleven or the whole Ocean's Collection or like Leonardo DiCaprio and Catch Me If You Can depicting Frank Abagnale as like a fraud person but that's looked as cool and avant-garde and like non-violent and um, white collar crime. Mm-hmm. But when Nigerians do 419, then it's stupid. <laughs> and me personally, I, you know, it's a really interesting cultural phenomenon because it means that Nigerians are prospering. The criminal, the criminal element of Nigerians is prospering through non-violent crime. And really, they're just hustling people that are greedy. Mm-hmm. So why don't we have our equivalent of Ocean's Eleven? Mm. You know, the biggest the biggest con ever done, I believe, was by a Nigerian scammer who got 
the Bank of Tokyo to finance a uh, airport in Brazil to like the tune of like I think the scam was like one point four or fourteen, yeah, one point four billion or something like that, or four hundred million. But for me, that should be a film, right? Or the dude, you know, Hush Puppy was the guy recently, right? The influencer. Oh yeah, but he—he. right, I don't don't agree with what he does. He's because as soon as you go on Instagram, you are leaving yourself open for capture. Yeah, but but for me, I look at it then that for me that story is just as rich and has the same level of subtext as something like Catch Me If You Can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, this is a guy with the especially where he came from. He was living an amazing, opulent lifestyle. You know, mm-hmm. directly dining with, um, you know, heads of you know fashion houses with um, Louis Vuitton and the like. However, people feel about him. Again, it's nonviolent crime. You were able to realize the same lifestyle that we all chase. And you know, what opulent lifestyle in many ways is not financed by some kind of crime or injustice? Very few of them. Mm-hmm. So I'm just looking. So what I'm trying to say to you is that if Hush Puppy listens to this podcast and you want to make a screenplay, I would make that. And, I, and, I, and that's kind of what I want to go next because, um, for me, it's about juxtaposition and, and having a discourse whereby, if we're going to have discussions about these phenomena within our cultures, we can use very uh, novel tools to do so. And I, I, I personally feel like, you know, someone like Hush Puppy, however people feel about him, that could be that would be an entertaining film. It's a it's a story we all want to hear about. Yeah. I want to see how someone was able to hustle with investment bank out of money for an airport that was never made. Like mm-hmm. these are interesting feats. These are worthy of study. I think they're worthy of study in like any Ivy League business school, and they're worthy of study in cinema as well. If we're going to lionize some of our nonviolent criminals, then we should be lionizing all of them because everyone loves an underdog story. Yeah, and you know what? When it came out in the press, when I went on his Instagram, I was like, it was like obviously, but actually, the fact that he was doing it for so long, absolutely, and it, and he pulled can- a lot. Of, he pulled a lot of other people. A lot of other people took his money. Didn't ask any questions. And um, yeah, I just I just think it's an interesting study other than just he's just a wanton criminal and should be locked up because Bernie Madoff stole 68 billion from white people with a Ponzi scheme and they've made about three films based on that. The guys with Mark Wahlberg and Will Ferrell was based on that. The big short with the all-star cast was kind of based on that as well. So for me, it's like if you can make these films kind of embellishing on these stories that definitely had the impact on culture, then mm-hmm. one man able to do that by himself should definitely be focused on so you know, arguably, Hush probably could make some legal money by selling the rights to his screenplay. Not that I'm encouraging him to do that. Is, is... That's, yeah, that's it. But uh, that's I'm the thing. Is, I think it's about, it's about telling stories, man. It's about telling very interesting stories. And uh, I'm and are you, I'm, I'm starting to see a lot more of it take place. Like, even when I go on, on YouTube and stuff, there are people that are making stop-motion cartoons about, like, you know, pre-colonial African civilizations and mm-hmm. doing it in the same way that you'd see like an anime show like Naruto, wow. which is quite successful now. And I'm encouraging all of it. And I just think, I think over the over time, we have underestimated how much uh, media plays a part in shaping our own self-image as well as our global perception. And so now that I'm in that industry, I want to do as much as possible to uh, make that a more genuine, uh, more genuine um, depiction and offer the opportunity for more capable people to tell their own stories as well. Love that. I love that. You're a pioneer, Dane. You're a pioneer. Dane, I want to ask you something that I ask every single guest at the end of the episode of this podcast. What does Black Joy mean to Dane Baptiste? Oh, good question. Um, For me, Black Joy at this age is a... seeing, I guess, seeing the seeds planted 
by our predecessors who fought and died for our joy mm -hmm. and seeing some of that uh, fruit begin to, uh, uh, I guess, sprout. So mm -hmm. that's that joy. My, for me, just seeing people like myself living, loving, thriving and prospering is black joy for me. That's pretty much it. Just people just, just love to see my people doing well. Love that. Also, what song would you play at the cookout? Oh, just one? Okay. Yeah, how about two? Two, two, two. What two, 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 thank you. Thank you. Two is cool. Two. Um, I would play Roses Are Red by Mac Band. Yes, that's on my notes. Good, good, good. Because some, because someone else is going to do candy, right? So I'll go pick something now, else. Candy's an obvious choice. Yes, I'm saying it's so obvious. So I'm gonna do that one. Um, and then show my nose. That's so funny. And then you know what I would do? Yeah, I would do this just to be. I'm just being silly, but it's nostalgic for me. Is you know Rampage, the sound at Carnival. So I used to go to Rampage when I was a kid. Okay, you know? yeah. So Rampage was normally the sound that's like the static one. So it's not with the flow. It's the static one where like one extra and everyone yeah, plays yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it gets quite raucous. Everyone gets a bit hyped up. Uh -huh. And once the DJ was like, you guys calm down. I'm going to start playing some like some pop music and dead tunes like this. And he played Smells Like Teen Spirit by Nirvana. Oh, tune. But everyone was, everyone went crazy. They loved that tune. Everyone went crazy. And I think it is a classic. I think, um, so that would be the other song I played because I feel like the cookout is not just going to be all black people. Someone's oh, going to bring friends or a partner along and we are welcoming inclusive people. Uh, what I won't do is point to the white when one white person at barbecue and go, "This one's for you, Jerry." <laughs> <laughs> do you know but, what I would play? Tevin Campbell, can we talk? Yeah, of course. Can we of course. Uh, of course. Classic, absolute classic, absolute classic. They're taking and me back. And just smile because it. it's classic. I, I think you know, and it, it's it's one of the most frequently asked questions at a cookout. I think so. Yeah. yeah, get the ball rolling, get some sweetness going on there. But yeah, I'd play Smells Like Teen Spirit because I like the song, it's about rebellion. Mm. And uh, yeah, I, I kind of definitely, as I'm older, really understand what uh, Kurt Cobain stood for mm. and uh, what his misgivings were about uh, contemporary culture. So yeah, there's, and, I, and for me, the song is also about reminding the children there of the future in it and that I uh, hope to be able to pass the torch onto my successors one day and keep it going until we're all free. Hallelujah. Thank you, Dane Baptiste, for coming on. Thank the you. I've had so much fun. I hope you've had fun. I've had so much fun. I really have enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. Uh, surprisingly, I'm one of these guys uh, who work in comedy who like to talk. So, yeah, I've had lots of fun going, blah, 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 nothing, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I've, I've had a wonderful time. Thank you so much for having me. Um, and genuinely, like, it's being able to talk to you guys and enjoying what I do, that means the most and is the reason why I do what I do. So, yes, and hopefully Bamus gets commissioned for more episodes. That's what we're hoping and praying for. We need absolutely, more. Absolutely. I'm happy. I'm happy for it. Not just for me, like what Bamus represents is as well as being a institution uh, and a new vehicle for British comedy and for black British comedy. But also, you know, again, it's a first that somebody my age from my from our background, where we're from, being mm -hmm. given a commission. And, uh, you know, even Bamus just as a format. We uh, film in what's called XR, like augmented reality. Uh -huh. And it's, again, never been seen before on British TV screens, not at least in a comedy format. So always kind of innovating and, uh, yeah, hoping to that continues with the series. Yes. Thank you, Dane. Thank you. Stay safe out there. Hey, sometimes I'm sad.
This is an Edinburgh TV Festival and TV Foundation podcast presented by me, Jackie Adadeji, produced by Mindy Just, and edited by James Dingle. And the fabulous music you're listening to is Nubian Twist. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. If I could catch a glimpse, maybe this time find the door to the peace of my mind. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.